1: It's honestly crazy to me, after being in the business as long as I have, and the business as long as Chris Hero has, that we never really crossed paths too much. Obviously in AEW once or twice, and maybe at some point in WWE, maybe, but it's been pretty rare that you and I have ever been in the same area together
2: yeah I think uh we saw each other backstage at a Royal Rumble okay and there was a fan getting kicked out a
1: fan had worked (laughs) his way all the way
2: into (laughs) the inner area of the locker room and I remember us chatting and then all of a sudden we're like get this guy out of here what's he doing you know and then very briefly I went up to Jacksonville to kind of meet with people and kind of hang out right you know, this is mid-pandemic, so I hadn't seen people in a while, and I caught you on my way through, uh, like, the
1: hotel bar. And, but now you actually are working for AEW mm-hmm. as a, a producer, backstage a guru. Uh, kind of tell us how, how that happened, because you mentioned we saw you at the pandemic. I do remember that now, but it seems like it's probably been about, I don't know, six months or so since you started in AEW. Kind of, how did that all come to pass? Yeah,
2: it actually has been j- just going on six months right now. I started at the very first collision. Uh, let's see, just my background with producing slash coaching. When I came back to the indies, got I got, I got let go during the pandemic. You know, I didn't wrestle right away. Obviously, I just recently wrestled for the first time in three and a half years. But working, doing seminars and working with some of these independent groups, I thought, man, they could really benefit from just a little bit of producing, a light bit of producing, and then some show-to-show development for for a lot of the young guys and girls. Mm -hmm. And my first foray was working uh, for Ring of Honor at like the last six months of the most recent iteration of Ring Mm -hmm. of Honor. And then that kind of parlayed when when they went on hiatus and they got sold. Uh, there was a group in Pittsburgh called IWC, and then they kind of gave me the reins to format the shows, just kind of give input here and there, and then just be really hands-on with talent. Uh, and then that was last year, and then that worked its way into me working with this group in San Francisco called West Coast Pro. And I just again formatting the shows, but this time I'm going to the schools. I'm just super, super hands-on, and every step of the way, I'm just learning a little bit more and and trying to work with people a little bit differently here, or there, and along this process. I got a message from uh, an old buddy of mine, Sanjay Dutt. Hmm. Uh, he told me about Collision, asked if I was interested in coming and you know, seeing, seeing how things work and seeing if I can be a hand and, uh, yeah. So we're like, all right, let's look at these five dates. Let's, let's try these five dates and see how it goes. And then we go from there and the five dates went really well. And here we are, f- uh, five, six months later and I'm doing shows every, every weekend.
1: So let me ask you this and we'll talk about your, your illustrious career in a bit, but what, what is it for you being a, a producer and a coach? Like, obviously None of us can wrestle forever. And it's kind of a smart move to transition into that role. How do you like it? How have you taken to it? And kind of what are some of the things that you notice that kids these days really need that you can help them with?
2: Yeah, uh, I really do like it it makes me nervous. Sometimes it's a challenge. Uh, and you know, not all matches are created equal. Sometimes you got to do a lot of heavy lifting. Uh, some you just kind of sit back and take notes and I've been in wrestling for 25 years now. So to be able to hop into something that's in my field, but I still feel new at, it makes me nervous in a good way. I always want to do a good job and want to learn from my mistakes the previous week. So it's, it's been exhilarating, right? You get to work mm. with these guys and girls and, uh, you know, maybe you make a suggestion that, that just pushes the match just a little bit, you know, a little bit into a different stratosphere and you, uh, you earn trust of the people you're working with. And then sometimes you just kind of, uh, okay, what's the best way to shoot this? You know, you get friendly with the people in production and the directors and the producers and you go, okay, how do we block this out? And what is the best way? And, you know, and you're on live TV, (laughs) right? Right. So you're like, okay, uh, live pay-per-view, live TV. So it's been a lot of, it's been a lot of fun. I built some good relationships so far. I've gotten to do a, uh, be a part of a lot of stuff that I'm, that I'm proud of, even though it's just one fingerprint on there, but just being a part of the whole process has just been a blast. And I love it.
1: Is it ever kind of a, a frustrating, like not in a angry way, but if you see a match and you had something all planned out and ready to go, and it's not executed the way you thought in your brain, or it doesn't go the way you want, is that kind of frustrating sometimes?
2: Yeah, it can be. It can be because we always see things in a certain way in our mind. Mm-hmm. It can be myself, my opponent, or the producer the booker, you know, we all have different visions and it's really hard to convey exactly what you want. That's why rehearsals can be so important sometimes
0: mm-hmm. because
2: there are some times when, um, you know, not necessarily AEW, but before where like, I explain, like, Hey, this is going to happen. And this guy's going to come out and you're going to go here. And then it just does not come out that way. I'm more inclined now to just kind of take it on the chin and be like, damn, we should have rehearsed that. I should have mm-hmm. explained better because no one wants to go out there and not do a good job. Everybody wants to do the best they can, but everybody's not, we're all on different levels, different stages. Uh, and we all have so much going on in our brains. So it can be frustrating. Sometimes I'm just frustrated with myself for not figuring out a, a way to convey things because as a coach, as a teacher, you can't coach or teach everybody the same way. Mm There are just, you know, some people that need, uh, you need to be a little more aggressive with, and some people you just need to let them relax
1: and do their thing. So I'm learning that as well. That's a great point. I mean, you you can't coach everyone the same way, just like you can't wrestle everyone the same way. And that's part of being a good worker is being able to adapt to other people's styles and kind of making them look the best they can in the way that they can do it. So is that something that you have to kind of figure out mentally? Like, Oh my gosh, this person needs to feel it more. And I have to explain everything more. This guy gets it. I can just kind of lay back.
2: Yeah. I can look at things under a magnifying glass and it's like a gift and a curse because Sometimes I can't turn my brain off and that makes it hard to enjoy things sometimes because you're like, ah, this and that and whatever, right? I will say, though, at the end of the day, a lot of the times it doesn't matter. It just doesn't matter because, you know, maybe it could have been 1% better and that's what we should strive for. But sometimes – good enough is good enough. Right. Like, say if I have a ring of honor match and I have two, two younger guys that are asking me, you know, for feedback before and after, and they, you know, I, I'm kind of building a relationship with them. I could sit and watch their 10 minute match and spend an hour pausing, rewinding, going back and forth. You know, it's a bit laborious. It's, it's a bit much. Um, so I only do that with people that I know super, super well. Uh, Because you don't want to overwhelm people. You don't want to inundate them with too much information. So sometimes I'll just take like, okay, if I noticed, if I took notes and I noted maybe five or six things, what are the two things that are most vital? Or what are the things that I can most easily convey to them about, you know, not telegraphing you're taking, you're taking the buckle and you're going to put a boot up, right? But you don't want to telegraph to the audience that you're going to put a boot up you don't want to tell them the end of the story before it happens. So that's something very easy that I can go, Oh man, there's this, that and the other. But as far as constructing a comeback that creates satisfaction for the audience in a wave, that's like consistent and you're getting there and and it peaks at the right time. And the pinfall is at the right time and you accelerate into the next thing after that's a bit more advanced and it takes a little time. Uh, And I don't always have the answer. So sometimes I'm like, this can work. This might work, but it's up to you to try it. The two criteria that I need for people that I work with are just, you just have to try and you have to care. Mm-hmm. As long as you like actually care about it and you are trying, it doesn't matter how much you mess up or how things go awry or whatever. Like You're on the right track if you try and you care.
1: It's a great point, man. It's a great point. And something else you mentioned that I I find interesting is you said you've just returned back to the ring after taking some time away. What was the reason that you were away for so long? And what was the reason why you came back? and, And how is it for you to kind of step back into that role as well? So let go
2: during the pandemic. I just, I did not want to travel. So I think if we wouldn't have been in the pandemic and i would have got let go i would have been on a show the next possible weekend
1: that i could right. do when i
2: when i got let go in in november 2013 on a you know a friday i was on a show the next friday the next friday saturday and sunday i i was all booked up and i think this time would have been the same if there were no uh, extenuating circumstances but i just wanted to see how things were going to play out i just was not uh, comfortable traveling and then not just the health Of it, but also people were getting crazy, man. Yeah. I was in Orlando at the time. You know, people were going in both directions, and I was like, man, I just want to stay away from all this. So the first thing was, okay, I'm going to take time off. I'm going to see how things play out and then figure out a way to kind of fit back in. Then as time went on, it's like, well, when you've been out of the ring for a year, you know, you can just take a booking and go have a match. But once it's been a year, I'm kind of like, man, I need to get myself in better shape Mm -hmm. and it's got to be the right thing. And the wrestling cycle just moves so quickly. Something can be news on, on Friday night and Saturday morning, something completely overtakes it. So I would have been, I think if I would have put a lot into a comeback and I just would have had a match and then the next day things kind of roll on, I think I would have been a little heartbroken, like, man, I was gone this long and, and I come back and now people kind of forget about it. Right. Mm-hmm. So then it became, now it's two years. Now it's two and a half years. And uh, you know, I got some great offers, some things that could have been awesome uh, as I'm sure you're aware. <laughs> yeah. But it just, it had to feel right. And it's really gosh, when it gets three and a half years and you're like, when am I going to find this thing that feels right? You gets, uh, you get paranoid. But with working with this group and San Francisco, West coast pro, I just really, really felt something special there. And I started going out there and helping out with the shows. And like I said, I'd go to the training school, spend time there, crash with the promoter. I, you know, we'd watch the shows back, we'd talk about things. And I really felt like I was a part of, uh, you know, helping kind of build this place up. I mean, they were already awesome, but just adding a little bit of insight here or there, you know, leaving my fingerprints on things and it just felt right. So we, we worked it out. Uh, I got to have my comeback match against a guy named Timothy Thatcher. He's just a, a great wrestler, uh, You know, one of my favorite opponents I've ever had in my life. Uh, mm-hmm. And he's also very meat and potatoes, just very, very basic. So it wasn't a super, super ambitious comeback. Right. And it just it just felt right. The history that we had, uh, you know, I got some people to put some videos together about our rivalry. It really felt like an event. It just didn't feel like a throwaway match. So I was able to kind of put that together and it just felt like the right time. And, you know, I'm still taking my time and easing back in. I had another match for West Coast Pro. It was uh, myself and Kenta uh, and we wrestled Kevin Blackwood and Titus Alexander, two of West Coast Pro's uh, you know, top heels. So just, a, an, again, a different kind of match, a different flavor. Uh, and now we've got one at the end of, of January. So it's kind of like, all right, let me take them one at a time and kind of see how they go instead of just diving back into the deep end. Because I'm, I'm 43, turning 44 at the end of this month. Got to get my, my head right, my body right, my mind right, all that stuff before I can take on like a full schedule of getting out there and doing my best to tear it up every night.
1: It's interesting, yeah, because you mentioned there was two occasions where your name came up to do a match with me. Uh, the first one was when I think I was doing the Five Labors of Jericho with MJF. Mm-hmm. There was a suggestion, which I, I think we ended up taking a complete right turn and doing the Nick Gage match instead. And the other one was during the uh, Ocho ROH title ring. We were looking for former champions. That one for sure. I was like, well, "What about Chris Hero again?" And I think we had Claudio call you or whatever it was. And for the reasons you just mentioned, you weren't ready to come back in yet. But there was two opportunities we almost had to work. Yeah, yeah, man.
2: And you know, how do you turn down an opportunity like that once, let alone twice? You know, so it's a little embarrassing on my behalf, but. You know, the nature of AEW, things are very, uh, you know, I don't want to say last minute, but things are just it's, last minute. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's just the pace is so fast and quick and, the, and there's this and you're on this and whatever. And I just thought I think it was uh, maybe in Chicago. I think. Uh, yeah, I think you wrestled Ishii. That's right. And I was like can I, okay, one, can I get ready in eight days? Mm -hmm. Can I get gear in eight days? Cause I still have my Cassius Ono stuff. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, my, that wasn't even on my radar as far as like, I need to get gear made. It's like, well, what shape is my body going to be in when I, when I have a match? So it was hard to say no to, but at the same time, things, things that kind of worked out.
1: Yeah. I I think hearing your reasons, even back then, I was like, well, you got a valid point, man. You know what I mean? Like you don't want to come out, after not being around for a few years on this big stage under this big spotlight and not be a thousand percent ready and a thousand percent your best in your head and physically. But as we know, if if you're not a thousand percent ready in your head, that's when the real problems start.
2: Yeah. And just all the people that have kind of stuck by me and my fans and such, I owe it to them to just Mm -hmm. bring my best, present my best. And it, it kind of makes me think back to this was uh 2013 i was doing stuff with with uh, regal on NXT, and i had an idea to kind of heat up the feud a little bit where i would wrestle norman smiley in an exhibition oh and take liberties on norman you know that would get regal involved a little bit more so that, that was kind of my idea because of course i love norman mm-hmm. uh, he's one of my favorite humans let alone people yeah, in wrestling sure and i remember telling norman like hey I kind of pitched this thing and I wanted to let you know. And he's like, no, 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 no. And we we would see him in training every day doing all these techniques. And he's great. You know, he's great. You know, you could do two, three minutes, whatever. But it wasn't could he do three minutes. It's would he feel comfortable Doing that. No, especially Norman. Norman was a, you know, such a, like a bodybuilder guy. He always took great care of himself and was the aesthetic era, the pumping iron era of pro wrestling is Norman Smiley. Right. Right. So I, I completely get why he didn't want to do a thing. I, it would have been cool, but just getting to share the ring with him behind closed doors is is enough. So.
1: Yeah, and like you said, it's a great idea. Norman's just the best guy. But I I forgot that you were in NXT back in 2012. So kind of tell – I want to hear about your two stints in NXT. Were you Cassius Ono in 2012, 13 as well? Yes, I was.
2: So the way my career kind of goes without getting too long in the tooth, I started training uh, after I graduated high school in 1998. I'm from Dayton, Ohio. Found some local places to train. Kind of worked my way through – Ended up at Ring of Honor, uh, and then I had two different runs with Claudio as a tag team Mm -hmm. partner. And then the run that we had 2010-2011, that led to us getting a tryout which led to
1: us getting signed. Gotcha. And this was, of course, the Kings of Wrestling. Yes. One of the great tag teams in Ring, Ring of Honor history, for sure.
2: Yeah, the the Kings of Wrestling. And we really, you know, our first run was fun, but the second one was where we really put things together. We had matches with the Briscoes, matches with Haas and Benjamin. We did, uh, you know, with several tours of Pro Wrestling Noah together. Like, it was just, it just felt felt perfect. So then we both moved down to Tampa. Claudio started in September, and I had some issues with my medicals, and I had to get that figured out on my own. It took me five months, but I got it figured out, and I didn't start until February of 2012. So Claudia got like a five-month head start on me. So when we were hired, we were told like, hey, we're probably not going to have you guys as a team. We'll probably use you guys as singles, and if the team thing happens, it happens, Right there were no false pretenses of us reforming Kings of wrestling and developmental. So, uh, we go through, Claudio gets called up pretty quickly actually. And then, you know, I'm working through, we're in Tampa. We make the move to Orlando. I, you know, I had some stuff on TV. I NXT TV, that is some fun stuff. I had that angle with Regal, uh, went up to mania weekend in New York, New Jersey, And then by the end of that year, I just kind of fell out of favor. I could see the writing on the wall. I got let go. So late 2013, I got let go. Now I'm back on the Indies. And I gave myself the fullest schedule I could possibly get, you know, Germany, Japan, all throughout England west coast east coast in the states and then i think 2015 and 2016 were two of my best years just Mm -hmm. quality of match wise variety of opponents Uh, and it just kind of made sense like okay i think i've kind of worked the whole loop got a couple years back on the indies i know myself a little bit more and now they know what i offer so they're want to bring me back as me and that's what i what i thought so i go okay let's i i already i still live in orlando I don't have to move. Let's give this a shot. And it was really the post um, Kevin Owens, Finn Balor era. Like, you know, they had Nakamura, Mm -hmm. they had Bobby Roode. It just seemed like, oh, okay. I could see myself fitting into this Boom, I'd I'd fit in nicely. These are guys that I know, have traveled with, have had matches with. And then I I started back in January of 2017. uh, And then I didn't know until I was going out to, you know, make an appearance for the live crowd. That I was going to be Cassius Ohno Again I thought I would be Chris Hero <laughs> And they're like nope you're Cassius Ono I was like well shit let, let, let's jump in
1: there Why, why were you Cassius Ono in the first place
2: I wanted the initials KO uh. Uh, Because I wanted some kind Of a subtle like because I was the Knockout artist I would use these rolling Elbows that would come out of nowhere and catch People I, I wanted that to kind of be my thing uh, So I was like oh if I kind of Had like an understated name like Chris Hero is like the most plain pro Wrestling name <laughs> ever
1: right it's just it's Chris Hero. The only one that's more in plain is Chris Starr with two R's. Yeah,
2: yeah. <laughs> so I had to go in a complete different direction, and I wanted the initials KO. So I played with a bunch, and uh, we had Dusty Rhodes at the time, and Dusty was uh, a fan of Muhammad Ali, so he got the whole <laughs> Cassius thing. Uh, the Ono part came from uh, Apollo Ono, the Olympian speed skater. Yeah, speed skater. So I thought like well, it's, it's a very silly name, but at the same time, it's pro wrestling and you can chant it and you can have different connotations a good Oh No, a bad Oh No, right? So I was like, all right, I think it's gimmicky enough and far enough away from Chris Hero that it, that it could kind of work. It got approved, which it was an era where it was really hard to get a name approved that you liked. Hmm. And yeah, and I was, I was Cassius Ono for a couple of years. And I just, I really thought they're bringing Chris Hero back, and I was like, "Oh, okay, cool." And it's you know we've got Shinsuke Nakamura—that's his name. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we got a couple people that came in: tomaso Johnny Gargano, those guys. I'm Roderick Strong. I'm like, "Oh, okay, cool. I can slide right in." And it's like, "Nope, you're you're Cassisono again." <laughs> so, all right, how do how do I make this work? Let me let me do my best.
0: The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed.
1: I was not
2: coachable. And that's kind of like a vague thing where it's, it's perspective, right? It's like, Hey, you know, you're not doing this thing that I told you to do. Mm-hmm. And then it becomes a thing like, oh, yes, yes, I am. I'm I'm trying this or trying that or whatever. And I just had fallen out of favor. It was uh, not, not the best era of developmental for some people there. There was a lot of like, you know, your heads were kind of getting screwed up. You, you were told to do this on Monday. And then by Friday, it's like, why would you do this? You know, you might get fired. You're like, oh, my God what are we doing? Right. And I, I don't know, man. I just, um, I think I maybe overstepped and thought I had a different kind of rapport with like the staff at the time with a couple of the people. And I thought like, Oh, we're kind of on a certain level. And and we were absolutely not. And I, but there wasn't, um, transparency, where they were telling me exactly how they felt they were not. They were telling me one thing and I was hearing around the corner that they were saying this. And I remember one day like my weight and my shape has has followed me throughout my whole career. It's like, "Oh, he's he's not in good enough shape or he wears a t-shirt." That was like early on in my mm-hmm. career. And then it's like, "Oh, he's getting in better shape." And it's like, "Oh, he's in bad shape again." And so that's the thing that has kind of followed me throughout my career. So when I got fired the first time, I was in the best shape I had been in my entire life. And there's still the narrative that I got let go because I was out of shape. So that's like a, a weird thing that that I had to kind of deal with. And I remember talking to the guy at the time and he was like, Hey, I can see how hard you're working and whatever. He's like, Oh, you know, I'm, I'm a big guy too. So I, I get it. Like I know how hard you're working. And then I was told by someone that was in the office, like the the pre-NXT TV meeting with, with Triple H and everybody, somebody asked for a progress report on me and the report was that I was not trying.
1: Hmm.
2: So when they make their minds up on you, it's it's really tough to turn it around. So I had a I had a 30-day talk that's like, hey, you know, we're going to do an evaluation period over the next 30 days and blah, blah, blah. And basically there, there wasn't really anything I could do because one, most of the shows they weren't putting me on. So it's hard to show them that I'm coachable when I'm not on the show. And then when I am on the show, and I, I remember getting this is really funny. Uh, we had a show in Daytona on a house show. I was squashed in four minutes by Leo Kruger. Leo Kruger ended up doing uh, Adam Rose. Oh, yeah. Right? yeah right, right. And then I was like, all right, they want me to get squashed in four minutes. I'm going to make it look as good as possible. I'm going to get absolutely nothing in, whatever. And then the match happened. And then I went to the guy after, and I was like, hey, did you see it? No, no, I didn't get a chance to see it. <laughs> So it's kind of like, well, you know, raising the wall. Yeah. And I remember we were all, we had an all in day at the performance center and they were calling uh, guys' names for random matches. So we just have to sit there and and watch these guys that aren't warmed up or anything go, go have matches. And it's like a couple really green guys. it's, It's just tough. It's an awkward position to be in. And then the general manager of the building, you know, hey, oh no can you can you come to the office and i was like oh man i can i can just see it coming Mm -hmm. and then as i pick you know stand up i grab my uh, hoodie or whatever there's people around me that kind of see what's going on and i was like hey guys you know all right bye yeah yeah, i got uh i got bounced out of there but i did have the 30 days to kind of be like well I feel like this is going to happen. What are my plans going to be after?
1: The thing for you is, though, like, you know, wrestling is is so many different things. And obviously, when you go to WWE, there's a certain aesthetic that they want everybody to have. You're a big guy. I mean, you're 6'3", 6'4", whatever you are. And you're a big, blocky, big dude. Like if you were in Japan, I would say, you know, you're like, you look like your body's like Tenru, for example, or it's like Kobashi. You're just a big, blocky dude, which sometimes doesn't fit the narrative of what WWE says is a pro wrestler, right? Until it does. Right, exactly. But you have to get the chance. Yeah, and you have to get the blessing. Right, exactly. And, and then suddenly yeah. it's great. You know, Terry Gordy, if he showed up today in WWE, would be labeled the same as you. You know, it's like, maybe made me laugh they try and send a big show to OVW to lose 100 pounds. He's a fucking giant, man. Yeah. He's not yeah. going to be 275 and ripped. He can't, you know? <laughs> I could have had a good run as the as, uh, son of the executioner. <laughs> yeah. So you go back the second time, you're thinking you're going to be Chris Hero, but you're, you're Ono again. How was that second run for you in, in NXT? Because neither time you ever got a chance to come up to the main roster, right?
2: No, I did not.
1: Right. So I I had gone through a rough
2: part of developmental. Anything would have been better than that. The way we were treated and talked to, and not all of us, you know, but just the air of... 2012 2013 developmental i you know anything would have been good so like looking back in hindsight there were just certain things that should have raised flags for me throughout this last day that i just kind of blew off because i'd already seen it be worse and you know "Eh, that's fine whatever yeah you know i I had a great time those travel nxt shows were awesome we were running these like thousand seat venues all across the country hot crowds you get to travel they took good care of us got to build the better relationships with some of the coaches like a like a Norman Smiley or or like a, a Robbie Brookside or or Steve Carino, like those guys. Mm-hmm. Like I just really enjoyed that. And then also at the end of my tenure, I uh, was a part of NXT UK. So I got to go over there and wrestle the guys like Tyler Bate and Pete Dunn. I was the, my and I loved the gimmick because I, I love British wrestling so much. I got to be the American that was trying to teach them how to be British wrestlers because instead of <laughs> realizing that Superkick came from Chris Adams, they're copying Shawn Michaels. Right. right? So yeah, right. that, you know, they're copying Strong Style, but they don't realize it came from Antonio Inoki. Like that, that kind of, that was where the wrestling genius stuff came in for me. Mm-hmm. So I got to, have some great matches, uh, some good character stuff. I got to come up with some really fun cutoffs, interesting stuff that, uh, you know, keeps you entertained when you're just having the same matches over and over. You try to, well, how can I do this a little bit different? And how can somebody that has watched a thousand hours of wrestling pick something out of my match that they haven't seen before? Right. Really? Uh, and then also I got to spend a ton of time with Johnny Saint, you know, that guy's like my idol. So for, you know, the legendary Johnny Saint to to sit next to him and show him contemporaries of his from 1960 France wrestling (laughs) was really cool. And we we got to spend some time with Adrian Street was in there. Dave Taylor would be at these tapings, too. So just a a great opportunity for me to be able to do that. And then I was on an NXT UK weekend and then we came back. And then that was when uh, flying back, we started seeing people with masks on and we're like, ooh. This maybe should I have a mask? Like what, yeah, yeah. what are right, we doing? Right, right. right. And then that's when things kind of shut down. And then I think it was maybe five or six weeks later was when I got the call that I was getting let go. You know, there was kind of nothing going on. I, to be, to be honest, I was surprised we didn't get let go sooner because right. it's like, well, we're just, I guess they just want to see how things play out. But I'm surprised I'm making money for, for not doing anything.
1: Let me let me go back to Johnny Saint. I've been doing Talk Jericho for over 10 years, and I don't think I've ever really discussed Johnny Saint in, in, in too much uh, detail. Yeah. I'll give a little description. You please take it over for people that don't know. If anybody here loves technical wrestling, Google Johnny Saint, and you will see some of the most incredible reversals and body language holds and just technique that you've ever seen. And everybody who ever tries to copy it sucks. Only Johnny Saint. It's like, it's like Negro Cassis and the Mahistral only Negro Cassis can do it properly. And only Johnny Saint can wrestle the way that he wrestles. So take over Chris and explain what Johnny does so well.
2: So John's style of wrestling, uh, some people call it escapology, right? So it's like you put, put him in anything. He can find a way out. So it's about the showmanship of getting out of a hole, not necessarily the catch wrestling technique to neatly take someone over out of a hole. He is just, uh, I I first saw him on a Michinoku Pro Tape that was Dynamite Kid's uh, retirement show at that time, a a show called These Days. Hmm. Uh, And he was on the undercard in a rounds match against uh, a young boy at the time named Hoshikawa and i had never seen well one you see him you're like oh he's just he's an old man nah. you know you just dismiss him right away cuz you look at him you're like oh he's an old man you know he's not in poor shape but he just looks like an older like like he's a fisherman maybe and then he just does some of these uh the way he kind of kips over on one hand like flips to his feet the way he maneuvers his way out of holds and it's it's kind of like hip- hypnotizing where he will start to move one way, start to move one way. And before you know it, he's already out of the hold and he's got you in a hold. Just seeing that for the first time just blew my mind. And this was in, you know, 1995 was when the match was filmed. So I'm not watching it until like five years later. (laughs) And then I'm like, where's this guy? What happened to this guy? Where? you know, whatever. So my very first time I was in England, I was in, it was 2003. I'm like, bugging everyone where where's johnny saint where does he and they're like oh he's retired uh he lives with his mom he drives a truck and i'm like wow this guy drives a truck like we need to get him in wrestling right so i bugged and bugged and this is this is kind of funny because rest in peace mal mason is the one that connected me to john he gave me his like home address and a telephone number a landline so I called to have a conversation with Johnny Sane. I was trying to get him booked for America. I was working with this group, Chikara, at the time, and we wanted to bring Johnny over. Uh, and it was just not financially feasible at that time. Fast forward uh, 2006, I'm over it for Ring of Honor, and I have like a free week. So I'm like, I've got John's number. i call him. <laughs> you know, he's still kind of reclusive. He hasn't done anything in wrestling. It's so weird. It's right. I'm calling this guy that I've never met, and I'd like to grab dinner with him. <laughs> So, and you know, this American guy, he's like, whatever. He's like, meet me, you know, call me at this time and whatever and whatever. So I'm like all the way in the South of England and I have to go all the way up to North Wales. So I like, I catch a ride, do a train, take a train, do another train. I get there at like 6 AM and he wants me to call at noon. So I'm like, all right, I call at noon. And he's like, all right, meet, meet me at at this restaurant at at 5 PM. So I'm like, well, now I got five more hours to kill. But then John came in and he was a gentleman he told stories uh, and I think he was just really s- one surprise that I showed up, but then also like, where's this weirdo American that knows this stuff about my career. And so the following weekend uh, there was a wrestler's reunion in England and he came out to it and, and people hadn't seen him in years. And that kind of like got his wrestling bug going again. And next thing you know, the next year he starts taking bookings again. And then I remember telling a promoter like, Hey, if there's any chance I could wrestle Johnny Saint, like I will work for free. It's no issue whatsoever. And he's like, "Okay, okay." So I wrestled Johnny Saint, and then uh, at the end of the show, I did not get paid. Um, <laughs> of <laughs> course, Bryce <laughs> Remsburg from AEW refereed that match. Well, how old was Johnny at the time? He's like 82 now. Uh, so this was in 2008. So he would have been just about 70. Just about seven.
1: sixty-seven years old or
2: so, yeah. Yeah, and then you know, I got to wrestle Johnny in a rounds match, and then all those years later at NXT UK. So even before NXT UK, WWE brought him to the states for six months. So when I'm it's at the really center, oh, wow. uh, he had a he had a class at the PC, hmm. and you know, I rode to shows with him a couple times and ask him about this guy, ask him about that guy. You try not to bombard him too much, but of course. He had his deck of cards that he would do his squats and his, you know. Boom, That's old boom, school, boom. yeah. <laughs> and hey, can you get me another deck of cards? Yeah, of course, Jim. Let's, let's get you another deck of cards.
1: And for people that don't know that, they, they take the deck. This is an old school way of training, especially in mm-hmm. England. You take the deck of cards and you throw one on the ground and you don't know what it is. And if it's a 10, you gotta do 10 squats. And then mm-hmm. you might be doing it with somebody and then they get one and they do five and then you do two. And it seems like, oh, how hard could that be? Triangles with the whole deck of cards to be Ooh. blown up after about 20 cards or so. Yeah.
2: <laughs> I can't recommend him highly enough just to watch a couple of his matches because yeah. he is so different and he's so fast and speedy. And just like you said, other people try to mimic his moves and they can come close. But John is just uh, he's he's a one of one. What a, what a class act and just a gentleman as well. Uh, so a, as you can tell, this is absolutely a highlight of my my last run with NXT is getting to
0: work with Johnny.
1: So let's go back to when you mentioned that that during the pandemic you get get let go. Is it frustrating for you to get let go again, Uh, especially since you never even got to the main roster for a match or anything like that? I mean, there's a part of you that
2: feels that you didn't accomplish the job that you're meant to do, right? You're like, man, I just feel. But during that time, I just never felt close. I never felt like, because, you know, there's some guys in developmental where it's only a matter of time. Sure. You know, just be there, either what they're being told or the, how they're being positioned. And I was kind of like, from my very first angle back in NXT was Bobby Roode. And it's like, he's the champion. Yeah, you know, I'm not going to win a program against the champion. So I felt like, oh, I think I've kind of hit my ceiling all already. So it's, I never never had a feeling like, oh, as long as I do this, I'm going to get called up to the main roster. It was just a an interesting time where I was getting kind of leased out here and there to do like an independent show. I'd go work for Progress or I'd go work for Booker T's group or, or ICW in Scotland. Uh, and it just felt like a different landscape. And I never felt like, not that I'd felt like I couldn't be on the main roster or, or do great things or come up with a good pitch that would make sense. But at the same time, I just felt like, ah, I can kind of see the writing on the wall of what they expect of me by how, how I'm featured, how I'm pushed or or not pushed. Or I also, an, another thing that was fulfilling their was uh, one of our coaches went down with an injury for a little while. Uh, So I took over his class at the Performance Center for a couple months. And I was working with mostly athletes that had never wrestled before. And they had gone through like Brookside's beginners class. Now I'm in charge of like eight to 10 guys and girls from all over the world. And I I really did enjoy that. And I thought, again, it goes back to me coaching at AEW. It's a challenge. It's not something that I know like the back of my hand. It's something that I have to actively put more thought into. And it's it's easy after being in wrestling for so long to just kind of go to what you know best and what you're most comfortable with. But when you're like sliding in and out of your comfort zone all the time like that, it just, I, it just makes me more complete. Mm-hmm. I find different ways to explain things. Uh, I find ways to that, – that's another thing. When you're working with athletes and non-wrestling people – I can't make them love wrestling, but I can f- try to find something that resonates with them and then watch them get excited over it. Right. Me. And I go, okay, now I've got something that can I can dig in with them. Because if you just go, oh, well, you got to watch all these Brad Armstrong matches and watch the Midnight Express and whatever, it's like maybe that will work for some people, but it just doesn't work for everyone. So having that opportunity also – I would try to find certain ways to get through to to some of the non-wrestling talent. Because if you're a wrestling fan, if you're in wrestling, you know, we can talk for hours and hours. But I, I need to make sure that they have context for for what I'm discussing.
1: Let's discuss some of the guys that coached you more specifically. I know you went to Dory Funk's school back in the 90s. And Dory's such a, a – he's a great guy, unique guy, still wrestles if he, if he can. What was it like training with with him uh, and kind of what kind of a style was he teaching you? Oh, that was such a great experience. He had just finished up
2: his uh, Funkin' Dojos and started kind of branching out and doing, doing stuff on his own down in Ocala, Florida. I read about it first online, and then I would see ads for uh, his camp in like WOW magazine, if you remember that thing. Sure. So I was like, oh man, this is a good chance. He's a guy that was uh, teaching developmental people. I mean, he's Dory Funk Jr. He's a living legend, Hall of Famer, and I thought it was kind of like a, a no lose situation for me to go down there. So, I ended up going to Dory's for two different camps. There wasn't like a I was there wasn't like a magic key that I picked up like oh I understand everything now, but just getting to be around him pick his brain on a thing or two. And then he was in the ring with us. You know, he you'd lock up with him and give him a fireman's carry or he'd lock up with you or he'd take you over with an arm drag. That's kind of priceless to, to get that opportunity. Sure. And the interesting thing about the camp, uh, I'm going to say there were about 25, 26 of us. I'd say about 10 of the people there had no training whatsoever. (laughs) (laughs) So it's like, there's people that are, you know, at the end of that very first camp, they promoted a show and they had matches from the camp. Right. Right. Some of it's the blind leading the blind, but some of it's like, Oh, you're getting in this. Uh, one, one of the guys was, uh, rocket Curry, uh, who was the son of flying Fred Curry, who (laughs) was the grandson of bull Curry. So it's like, Oh, this guy has like a great lineage, you know, his father and grandfather both worked with, with Dory and Dory's father. And then it's like, Oh, now there's this kid. Uh, my roommate is this kid, this college football player from Ohio from Zanesville, Ohio, he goes to Muskingum U- university and he's my roommate and he's my buddy. And now he's going to go to independent shows with me after this. So it's just the <laughs> funny dynamic of right. who you meet. And that's wrestling is so much about networking, about having a conversation with somebody, having a match with someone and then them popping back up on your peripheral of like, Oh, what about this guy? Let me, let me see what this guy's doing. And mm-hmm. that's so much of my career has just been right place, right time. You know, going on tour with Insane Clown Posse when they started their wrestling tour, right? That was a happenstance thing. Uh, going to Germany for the first time when I was just 20 years old. I didn't even have a passport when I got booked on the show. <laughs> These things just happen out of persistence and being at the right place at the right time, a little bit of luck. Just going to this camp and training with Dory opened up so many more doors for me. And then you just have, you have his name on your resume, you know? And some, you know, some people you know, that name really applies and some maybe not so much because, you know, if you go to my cage match page, there's a handful of people that has listed me as training that I I don't quite know them, (laughs) but that doesn't mean they haven't been to one of my seminars or whatever. So when I first started, it was just a ring in a garage with a couple locals because wrestling was so hot in 1998. You could just advertise pro wrestling and, and 300 people would show up and it was it was just crazy. I look back on the shows that I was on in my first year in wrestling. It's just like wow, some of these big crowds, and we didn't even have a name on the show. We were just locals,
1: right? Just pro wrestling.
2: Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So I did those shows. Eventually, I found my way to Les Thatcher's camp uh, outside of Cincinnati, and then that was like a real culture shock, where I was like, oh my god, I don't know what I'm doing. Like mm-hmm. these guys are doing these big, long, complicated spots off of memory, like you know. So that was one. And then I went to Dory's. And then it was, you know, I started working for Ian Rotten for IWA Mid-South, working twice a week for him in front of the same crowds. And this was like the post-USWA Louisville area. Uh, So we had like some younger fans, but we also had old territory fans there, too. And it really taught us how to keep heat in our matches, taught us how to run angles, keep things fresh because we're working in front of the same people. And then... I got my fascination with Johnny Saint and then that led me to Peachtree city, Georgia. And I trained with Dave Taylor, Finley and Regal, you know, I'm like, man, I'm kind of really getting like a,
1: a full education. That, that's quite the comedy team between those three guys. for yeah. sure. Yeah.
2: <laughs> <laughs> and when you're a, a nervous, you know, 22 year old and you're like, man, these guys have some really risqué jokes.
1: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Let's quickly talk about uh, another mentor of yours, uh, Tracy Smothers. Yeah. Obviously, the, the the late, great Tracy Smothers, who I was with in Smoky Mountain Wrestling when I was only 23 years old and learned a lot from Tracy. When there a lot of guys there weren't very cool, Tracy was always the coolest. So kind of talk to us a little bit about your experiences with him.
2: Man, Tracy was just the best, man. He was the best. He was the first guy that i remember seeing on television and sharing a locker room with Mm. that was just so nice and so like he made you feel really good about yourself he would watch your match and be like hey man that was good that was good you know you ever think about doing this and just in an encouraging way he was never threatening uh he could be like hot-headed at times but like never never to us yeah you walk into the locker room and Tracy's there. You know it's going to be a good. Hey man, because he's. Hey man, hey man, I hate you, man. Hey man, I hate man. you, man.
1: Come on, man, give me some. <laughs>
2: yeah. Gosh, just working with him, like, because first he would just bring me to the ring with him, like, because you know, oh, I want, I want somebody ringside with me to get a little bit of heat. Oh, okay. And I remember him trying to convince little Guido, like, that I wasn't going to hurt him. Like, oh man, he's good. He's good. Trust me. He's going <laughs> to hit you with one of his things, but he's good. You know. Yeah. And I'm like, don't, don't, Guido. I, I'll do whatever you want. (laughs) It's okay. But he is somebody like, I just, so I was on a show with him in Wisconsin in 1999, August 13th, 1999. And that was the first show that I met Jimmy Jacobs. Wow. 15 year old Jimmy Jacobs came down from Michigan, came to the ring on a pogo stick. (laughs) And I remember like he wrestled his brother and the petty 19 year old. I was like, Why'd they do a dive? I want to do a dive in my match, you know, <laughs> you know, but Tracy was the name on that show. I just met him before the show, shook hands, talked whatever. Uh, and I, you know, I lost my match on the show and I'm selling in the ring. And as I'm walking to the back, Tracy comes out and then just like checks on me and helps me and helps me to the back. And I'm like, what is, what, what is going on? What do you do this? Right. Uh, so I didn't see Tracy again for, Maybe two years, and then I walked into an IWA locker room. He was there, and he goes, "Hey man, did you ever get paid for that show in Wisconsin?" (laughs) And I'm like, "How does one? My hair is different now. How do you even remember who I am?" I remember, and no, Tracy, I did not get paid from that show in Wisconsin.
1: (laughs) Hey man, we're gonna start slow and taper off from there.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Classic man. (laughs) He he used to call me Superman. Hey Superman, you know, because I used to wear the Superman shirt. Hey (laughs) Superman, he he had nicknames for everybody. everybody, And then just seeing Tracy get a little bit older and just how giving he never let, you know, he, maybe he was personally jaded by some things in the business because, you know, some people were not good to him. You yeah, we had some people that just did not look after his best interests. Right. But that never impacted the way he treated other people. He was always letting people hop in the car with him and go to shows, you know, you know, say, Hey, help, help me sell my gimmicks and you can ride with me to the show. Or he was always trying to, Feed for people in matches That probably didn't deserve To bump him Right Just was, was the best. He'd, uh, he'd watch a match. He'd be sitting by the monitor with people and crazy move would happen. Spanish fly, Canadian destroyer. And he'd get up and he'd go, well, damn, they done did all my moves.
1: <laughs> and he just, yeah.
2: uh, I still have a couple <laughs> voicemails from him on my phone and he just was always kind, always encouraging. I was hopeful that his treatment was going to help. Mm. You were one of the people that, that made a, made a donation to his GoFundMe And it just, it worked for a little while, but it's, it's just tough, man. Cancer is tough before, before you know it, you know, he went in to get a hurt, had a hernia surgery that was, they were hoping to have this hernia fixed before he could go under more treatment because it's just so damaging to the body. And then he just didn't make it through the surgery, man. Yeah. It's really tough. It was really sad, but he's one of the ones that when he passed, everybody had a Tracy story and all of them were good man all everybody just talked about how kind he was you know he had no reason to just be nice to everybody but he, he, he was. just he, he really was and that's what i try to take from that is just i want to be that guy that some, that as a younger person in the locker room you can go to somebody with a little bit more experience and not get judged not get made fun of not yeah. get picked on you know, not that a ton of that even goes on nowadays, but he just was so, he would build you up and make you
1: feel good about yourself. It did back then though. It did yeah. back then and he was always there for that. Yeah,
2: you know? it just, so so encouraging. And I just, that's, that's what I try to be, especially in this role that I'm in right now with
0: AEW. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed, also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand.
1: So you start to wind down, Chris. I just want to talk to you a little bit more about the kings of wrestling and your your relationship with Claudio. How did that come to be in Ring of Honor? Because you guys had such great chemistry and so many great matches. So I met... Claudio on a show
2: in Switzerland in January of 2002. <laughs> he was at a tag team called Swiss money holding uh, him and his partner Aris, a fellow Swiss wrestler. And they kind of looked like, if you just looked at them at the time, kind of looked like Stevie Richards and bull Buchanan with the right to
1: censor. Okay. Yeah. You yeah. know, they had
2: the, the dress shirts with the sleeves cut off and the ties, but they were Swiss bankers. That was their gift.
1: Ah, gotcha. <laughs>
2: so when I started going to Germany, you know, the Netherlands and Switzerland and such, the scene was all but dead. Mm. The older wrestlers that had worked in the tournaments and such, uh, there wasn't money in wrestling. So they just kind of left wrestling and whatever. So this era of wrestling was being built up by younger guys that, uh, you know, watched ECW and wanted to wrestle and maybe they found somebody that had a little bit of training, teach them a, a little bit of something. And then they started running their own shows. And then, you know, some of the guys would come out of the woodwork here or there, but they were very much a self-taught generation. Mm -hmm. So when I would go over there and work with these guys, I just had a specific way to call matches, just a basic structure of like, oh, what kind of a shine do you want to do? What do you want to do in the heat? What kind of a finish? Whatever. And like they didn't have terms for that. They didn't have any kind of organization at least the, the people that I was working with at the time. So they st- really started picking my brain about like, well, how do you, you know, what do you do? What do you, and then I started like, well, shoot, let me just tell you what I've picked up from Les Thatcher, from Dory, uh, you know, from whoever. And Bull Payne was another person that kind of, it was the first person I remember, and this was a class at Les Thatcher School. Bull was there just kind of hanging out, and he just told us the kind of basic steps of a match where it's like, you wrestle a little bit and then you know, you know, first you have to find out who's the good guy and who's the bad guy. Then you give the babyface a little bit of something. Then you cut them off and you put heat on them. So bull pain was the first one that I, I picked that up from. So I took that and kind of expanded on that. So when I would go to Europe now for one show, now I would go for a week because I would do a week training camp. And then it would be like, oh, well, this guy wants to use you in Austria. So now I'm there for two weeks. And it's like, I've got a show in the Netherlands, one in Germany, one in Switzerland, and I've got a seminar and a camp. So I'm supplementing my income. You know, I'm making. 50 bucks a show, maybe in the States, I come back after three weeks in Europe with a couple thousand bucks from, from camps and whatever. And I'm like, okay, cool. I've got rent for a little while. I can buy some merch to make a little money. And you know, that's the struggle of a, of a starving artist. Right. So Claudio was like laser focused. He wanted to know anything and everything. Mm-hmm. You know, what how many reversals do you have for a hammer lock? You know, what what kind of shine spots do you have out of a headlock? Uh what, what kind of cutoffs do you use? What what are ways out of this submission? You know, so he was just very like wanted to know everything. So he brought me back to do a camp in Switzerland. And then we just – we became friendly. I did the Dave Taylor training camp. Gotcha. And then he thought, oh, this is – it's such a bummer that this did not last longer. But Dave had a WCW ring, so he started doing these camps. But I don't think a lot of people knew about them. So I went and did one with like A Steel and Punk and Derek St. Holmes. We went down and there were just a, a few of us. He had another one the following month. Claudio flew over from Switzerland to go to Dave Taylor's camp. And once again, Jimmy Jacobs was at that Dave Taylor camp, right? Mm-hmm. So Claudio decided that he wanted to wrestle in the States. So he got his damn green card, <laughs> ended up over. Mm-hmm. We all hopped in cars. Uh, we started traveling around. And then Claudio actually got booked for Ring of Honor before I did.
1: Oh, so this started pre-Ring of Honor the Kings of Wrestling. Then? Yeah,
2: yeah. So I think what happened first was he accompanied me. In CZW, you know, just to kind of mark him as like a lackey of mine, he would wear my gear. Right. So, you know, I'd have my Chris Hero gear on and he'd be ringside wearing my Chris Hero gear. Uh, so there's some funny videos where I'll see a clip from CZW at that time and I'll see something and I'll be like, was that me or was that Claudio? No, that was that was definitely <laughs> Claudio. was just way too good. Right. Yeah. So we we teamed a couple times on just small shows here or there. And then we did this angle in Chikara. We all turned heel myself, uh, Claudio, this guy named Eric Cannon. We called ourselves the Kings of Professional Wrestling because, you know, there's three of us, like the three kings. That was kind of the idea originally that got shortened to Kings of Wrestling. And it was just Claudio and I as a team. Right. Then we won the tag belts for Chikara, for CZW, for Ring of Honor. Uh, we held all these belts at the same time. We were going to Mexico. We were trying to get into CMLL, which did not work, but we tried. And then Claudio got signed to WWE the first time. So then we dropped all the belts, <laughs> dropped yeah, them all. Right, right, we, we, you know, we did like a turn angle. We turned on each other, you know, whatever. And then his deal got rescinded. And it's like, oh, now he's back. And now, then we had this kind of weird limbo for a little while. You know, I went off and did my stuff. He went off and did his stuff. And then. We were both in ring of honor and we were both heels and we both lost programs. Like we were in a feud and we lost them both. And then the guys that we put over and the angles left ring of honor, but then we combined at the end of the show to take out the Briscoes and we reformed our team. And it was like, wow, it doesn't really matter. We just started this whole new thing and just work, you know, obviously we go to the Briscoes right away. And got to got to really work with them. We had worked with them before, but this was like, okay, now we're gonna wrestle each other 15, 20 times.
1: Yeah, and that's kind of what I wanted to talk to you about was, you know, like I said, the last few questions here about the Briscoes. Yeah. And just how amazing they were as a team. And then tell us a little bit of, of your experiences with with once again, sadly, the late great Jay Briscoe.
2: Gotta be my favorite tag team to ever wrestle. Wow. Both in-ring, like technique-wise, but then also just the whole process of hate to give away too much, but they are just a pleasure to work with on and off camera. It was, you know, sometimes to have a good match with somebody to really hunker down and get it all figured out. Sometimes it's a bit of an arduous process where you're like, oh man, we got to sit and call this thing and think about this and whatever. And just sometimes it's tough and that's not a, you know, that's not good or bad. It's just a thing that exists. Yeah. They are always the easiest, the most pleasant, the coolest. There's never any kind of a weird confrontation. They're just the easiest. Also, their degree of like the stuff that they do that looks really nasty that you would watch and be like, oh, you ain't going to fucking kick me like that, you know? Right. Yeah. And then you get to <laughs> yeah. work with them. And it's like, oh my God. These guys are professionals. Like, wow. Like, there's a reason these guys are the absolute best. They're easy to work with, and it looks good, and they just – oh, my God, their promos. Man, There, I love that there are just still so many of those old Ring of Honor promos of them just talking about a random tag team match with a random opponents, and it just – damn, I want to pull up Honor Club. Let me see if we can watch that match. Like, what happened? Yeah, right, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This, this is a funny story. And next time I see you, I'll, I'll, I'll show you on my phone. But I – got to do an angle with Papa Briscoe where <laughs> in the midst of this whole thing, it was like father's day or something. And I cut a promo on the dad and I said something crude, you know, this is when Cornette was uh, ring of honor and he was all about it, said something to, to Mike and he hopped the rail through a security guard and slapped me and knocked me unconscious with the slap. <laughs> <laughs> but I managed to like, you know, uh, and then I held on to Claudio, and then I, you know, it was supposed to be like slap shot, but it was more like slap one, well, a thousand, two, and thousand, three. And five,
1: got him, heading back.
2: <laughs> uh, and that culminated in Final Battle 2010. We had a six man tag match where it was uh, myself, Claudio, and our manager at the time, Shane Hagedorn, uh, who works for the merch department for uh, for AEW. Oh, no, no kidding. Uh, against uh, Jay. Mark and Papa
1: nice,
2: <laughs> and just so cool to, to get to do that, that match and get to do that angle and work with those guys. Uh, you know, I had done tours of Japan with the Briscoes, some of the best matches I've seen live, you know, Briscoes and Mar Fuji at Budokan hall. You're like, Oh my God, these guys are incredible. Mm. But I really think they brought out the best of us as a team. I'm i I'm a wrestling nerd. So I'm like, Oh, this tag move and this sequence and whatever. Like I like that stuff. Yeah but they're just, they're fighters, right? So if you can get a little bit of that, but at the same time, you're trying to kick someone's teeth in. And I don't know, man, you see the fire in someone's eyes when you're in there and you're like, Oh my God, this is real right now. Right. Those guys brought it every single time. And I just, some matches you don't want to watch because you're like, ah, I wanted to keep the mystique, but there's never a Briscoes match that I, I would take a second thought about watching again, because it's just, Man, they're just they're so good.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like I said,
2: the whole process is easy, but just, you know, there's little easter eggs every time you go back and, and watch one of these matches and man, and then also just those two guys as brothers. Like I said, we'd be in Japan together and they'd get in like a little slap fight with each other over something and then 5 <laughs> minutes later they're perfectly fine. I remember this one woman in Japan used to call them Chippendale. And, and I was like, "Oh man, they that's they're the they're brothers, man." <laughs> yeah. And uh oh my gosh, they're just to see them i had been watching them on tape since 2000 you know they had this match this crazy match i think they're like 15 and 16 years old maybe 16 and 17 they just had this crazy match with these mm-hmm. j driller pile drivers and these dives to the floor the shooting stars to the floor and just these tall thin kids that are like like look like high school amateur wrestlers but you could see that greatness was there, was there and they yeah, just yeah. they grew up to be these just Grown up, badass shit kickers. It's it's crazy to think I'll never share the ring with Jay again. Mm-hmm. But I am just so thankful and and just proud that I was able to do so for such a long time.
1: Now that you're in AEW and and you are a coach and you're 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 a producer, kind of what's your overall goals now here in AEW? What do you want to accomplish with these all these different hats that you wear? So I want to
2: continue to get better at my job because there's just times when you're on headset. And either you're a second slow or you just didn't have the foresight to think of, because it's not just what happens. It's like what could happen. Right. (laughs) So you got to be ahead of things. And I see some of these other guys that are just so, so good at that. I I really want to get better at that technical aspect of it. I would like to help foster a, a bit more development with a lot of the younger guys and girls where we are getting a little bit more time in ring Uh, we're watching matches back and kind of creating a dialogue about that. When it comes to ring of honor, I just do my best to try to find out what's happening and get it to talent as soon as possible, because those days can be pretty hectic. Mm -hmm. I just, you know, I want to make everybody's job a little bit easier. I want, I want to be that guy that people can rely on to either know what's going to happen or he knows who to talk to, to figure out what's going to happen. Uh, And then just personally, I'm going to keep having matches for West Coast Pro and kind of see how that goes. I'm going to get myself in better shape, going to keep getting new gear, uh, and then just kind of see uh, how my body feels about taking on a a busier schedule. And then just the landscape of AEW, all the great wrestlers there, all the great personalities. uh, But then also people that I have history with. Like I could go through, I, I was talking to Tony Schiavone about this the other day. I've just met Tony recently and have been spending a lot of time with him and he would have no reason to really know me or know what I've done. So every now and again, he'll hear something and be like, Oh, okay. Okay. So like if you, if you look at a guy like Claudio, right, he's somebody that, that I spent a lot of time with early in his career. Uh, Orange Cassidy was one of my students. Mm. Malachi Black was one of my students. Then you have somebody like Brody King, right? I remember uh, wrestling PWG and roll, you know, rolling outside the ring, and Brody King sitting there front row. You know, he's somebody <laughs> that I've known for a long time. There's guys that I know from Japan, guys that I go f- know from NXT, and then there's people that I just have never had the chance to step in the ring with. Mm-hmm. There's a lot that is interesting to me, but. Am I up for the challenge? You know, I just got to make sure that I'm not doing it just to have these matches and say that I've had them and get them done and whatever. Right. What can I bring to the table? That's different than what other people can do. It's such a, like a dream match era in wrestling. This is a dream match. This is a dream. Well, what can I contribute beyond that? I don't want to just be like, Oh, I wrestled Chris hero. Boom. It's like, I want it to be like a butterfly, butterfly effect where, I can impact people's careers and the way they have matches and the way they do things th- that six months down the road, there's something slightly different about them because I was a, a chemical that interacted with, with them and sent them on a different path. And then just to, you know, these young guys, I keep saying it, but they're inspiring, right? You see them and you're like, Holy shit. Mm-hmm. Oh, well, you know, how, how am I going to keep up with that? What am I going to do? How do I hold my own? Uh, but then also, you know what? What kind of effect is wrestling me going to have on them? Right. That that kind of stuff excites me, but at the same time, I'm still trying to not not get too far ahead of myself, because I want to be in the right state of mind, the right state of body, uh, before I get back at it full time.
1: What's your favorite match of all time? Is one stand out for you?
2: Uh, one that comes to mind, um, and I don't know if it's my best match or whatever. I'll I'll, I'll say two. One uh, is with a guy that's currently in WWE. His name's Akira Tozawa. Mm -hmm. I had a match at the Battle of Los Angeles in 2010 with Tozawa, man, he is just so, so good. That crowd was awesome. It was a tournament match. Um, You know how you have these tournaments with all these great wrestlers and every now and again, one of these just random second round matches just ends up, you know, being the match that kind of steals the show that that was the one for me, like that was such a special match. And then. From the same tour where Misawa passed away mm. in Japan, uh, summer 2009, uh, the first show of that tour was at Corkin hall. And I had a singles match with a guy named Go Shiozaki, uh, who's uh, currently back in pro wrestling Noah. Right. And I knew go from his excursions in the United States, staying at Harley's working ring of honor, but then also throughout Europe at that time, it was very hard to get singles matches for Noah. But I had a singles match with him at, at Corican. You can just tell the reverence that the crowd gives me after the match compared to before. before yeah. And it was because the war that I went through with that guy that chopped my damn chest off <laughs> for him to be unselfish. And you know, that, that was just really special. And I noticed every time I wrestled at Corican after that, the, the crowd was just different a little, vibe, right? little extra hot for me. Yeah. Japan is different. I really struggled to connect with the audience there. But that match really kind of help that and it's funny all those years later like some people will still bring that up to me so both very special matches for me
1: well dude it's great talking to you and uh g- glad to get a chance to finally be in the same locker room with you and get to know you a bit and uh, looking forward to seeing all the great things that you've got coming up yeah
2: thank you so much for having me man it's a pleasure
1: and i'm excited for the future cheers dude thanks man we'll see you uh, we'll see you backstage